Hey, welcome to Wayfair. This is Aaron. It's Lent again, and I'm so glad that you've joined us for another season. So this season, we're going to do things just a little bit differently. In the past, we've had a smattering of songs and prayers and stories, places for you to jump in and pray along. But this time, we're going to narrow our focus just a little bit. We have a writer's group at Central that's been meeting since last summer, and we have been blessed with some great writers there. We've enjoyed all kinds of writing, from personal narratives to short stories to poetry. And so this season, uh, we've commissioned some works for Lent. Each week, we'll hear from a writer, and we'll talk with them a little about their inspiration and their process. This week, we're going to hear from Anna Walsh. Anna is a teacher at the Lexington School who's been coming regularly to our writer's workshop. Christy Gabbard introduced her to the group, and we're so glad to have her with us. So here's a little bit more about Anna. Um, well, just I kind of like I talk about in here. Yeah. The uh, Are we on? Yeah. Do I need to? Okay. Um, Always be recording. Okay. That's what. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> All right. Well, I'm Anna Walsh, and my husband and I both teach. And in 2010, my husband was hired to work at Lexington Traditional Magnet School, where Christy Gabbard worked. And she and my husband and Christy worked on the same team. And we happened to meet at, I think, a, a get together or something. And Christy's awesome. And so she became my friend. And we've stayed friends ever since. Um, my husband now teaches at Scott County High School. And Christy's at Dunbar. But our friendship is alive and well. And um, so I teach at the Lexington School. I teach students with dyslexia. And I've taught students from first grade all the way up to right now. I'm teaching sixth and seventh graders. And writing is something that I've always enjoyed, um, but I've never really done anything with. And so last summer, Christy was telling me about a class here at Central Baptist where you guys were getting together and doing some writing, and she encouraged me to come, so I did. And it's been wonderful. I've been really encouraged and inspired, and I really appreciate the opportunity to write things that other people read. That's scary for me, but it's good. And um, I just think what your your outreach ministries are fantastic. Um, I'm a Catholic. I grew up free Methodist, so did my husband. And I guess about 10 years ago, both of us kind of felt this, the call at the same time to convert to Catholicism, which I totally believe was a move of the Holy Spirit. I had been reading um, Thomas Merton's autobiography, The Ten Story Mountain. Yeah. And I'd been thinking in my heart, wow, I really want to check out Catholicism, but I'm not sure if James, my husband, would go for it. And one night we were sitting together and he said, um, you know, what if what would happen if we started going to the Catholic Church for a little bit? So we went to the Newman wow. Center at, on UK's campus. And after two years, we went through RCIA and now we worship at St. John's in Georgetown. Um, but I think that we are lucky because we kind of live the best of both worlds. The emphasis on scripture from the Protestant church and, you know, the small group setting. And so that's also what I really love about coming to the writing class is just not only do we write, but we talk about, um, you know, scriptural things. And I love writing and tying all that scripture in. It's really fulfilling for me. So. So now we're going to move into Anna's story. Anna somehow begins with a comparison of 19th century authors, Bronte and Austin, and eventually leads us to a tree with a tiger in it. So let's join Anna now as she reads her Lenten reflection for us.
for reasons that I'm sure a licensed therapist could easily unpack, I've been sucked into a rather curious wormhole lately, a Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte wormhole. Since May 2017, I've read Pride and Prejudice five times, every other Jane Austen book at least once, Jane Eyre twice, and I'm currently working my way through the other Charlotte Bronte books. These 19th century love stories are as addicting for me as any Hallmark movie, and for the life of me, I can't really figure out why. Over Christmas break this year, I forced myself to read two rather dark crime mystery novels by current authors just to prove to myself that I didn't have a serious problem. At the bottom of this wormhole, I've discovered that I'm more of a Bronte heroine than an Austin leading lady. Austin women are usually beautiful, witty, and irresistibly attractive to the male protagonists. Bronte women are plain, a bit awkward, desolate, and require a long period of acquaintance to reveal their loveliness to their desired love interests. While I tend to devour the Austin novels like a bag of M&Ms, pouring handfuls into my mouth with little awareness, I savor Bronte novels like a rich chocolate truffle. I underline sentences, I fold the corners of pages, and I journal about the inner dialogue which seems to so mysteriously mirror the thoughts of my own heart. For those of you at this point who could care less about these two authors and who are now irritated with me for daring to mention chocolate during Lent, I need to delay this groundwork because this curious obsession with 19th century romance novels recently led me to a rather significant personal revelation. The current Bronte book by my bedside is Villette, named for a fictional French town where the main character, Lucy Snow, spends time falling hopelessly in love with a man named Graham Breton. I'm only halfway through the book right now, so while I'm rooting for an eventual marriage between these two, Graham is currently disinterested in Lucy, and things aren't looking that great, as is typical, by the way, for a Bronte book. Don't feel too sorry for Lucy just yet. Early in the story, Lucy makes a bold, daring decision to leave England and try her luck in France, even though she has no connections there. Trying to look on the bright side, she forces herself to remain relaxed and hopeful. However, as she bravely faces an unknown future, she describes the anxiety that she can feel lurking just behind her optimism, waiting patiently to devour her calm. Bronte uses the metaphor of a crouching tiger to describe such anxious thoughts, and the paragraph describing the tiger to the reader is boxed, underlined, and starred in my copy of the book. I, too, know this tiger of anxiety, and we are not friends. It was recently pointed out to me that the gospel readings during Lent center around the idea of place, of the desert, of the road, of the spot where Mary and Martha encountered Jesus soon after their brother has died. After reading about the tiger in Villette, I found myself thinking a lot about the place where my own anxiety tiger lives and why I allow him to remain there. My tiger lives far up in a tree, a tree which sits maybe a hundred yards or so from a large body of water. I can't decide in my mind's eye if it's a large lake, ocean, or sea. All I know is that the water is dark, and I can't see the other side of it. The tiger sits high up in the branches, absentmindedly licking his furry paws, flicking his tail carelessly in a manner that is unhurried and unworried. It knows that I'm easy prey, because I can't seem to keep my hands off of that tree. Even though I know the tiger is there waiting, I still tug on each branch, struggle to find my footing, and make the climb to where he waits. That's the most devastating thing for me about my own anxiety. I can see it coming. I know how I will feel in its powerful grasp, and yet still, I make the climb. Forcing myself to think more about the tree, I've come to realize that the tree's name is significance. Its branches also have names, beauty, wealth, achievements, victory, and social status. 
I grasped these branches, desperately wanting to find significance among their rich, velvety leaves, only to discover once I finished my ascent that the leaves are plastic, the branches weak and brittle, and the tiger has me in its paws once again. Anxiety reminds me that I'll never be enough, that I don't matter, and that in the end I will end up alone and forgotten, my flesh devoured by the tiger, my bones lying in a messy heap at the bottom of that tree. One day, as I was meditating on the idea of this tree, I saw myself at its base, one hand reaching up for a branch, one foot perched on the knobby bark. I didn't really want to make the climb, so I hesitated. In my hesitation, I heard a voice. Keeping my hand and foot on the tree, I turned around and saw a man in a boat, floating near the shore of the water. He was calling my name, beckoning me to leave the tree and join him in the boat. He promised me peace, and I heard the tiger above stir ever so slightly in the branches. I dropped my hand and foot and turned around to get a good look at this man and his boat. The boat was a bit small, and I wondered if it could handle the dark, choppy waters of the water behind it. I told the man this, and he smiled. Come and see, he replied, beckoning me again with an outstretched arm. Far above me, leaves began to rustle loudly as the tiger purposefully began its descent. Normally, I'm easy prey, and it doesn't have to hunt. But this man was a new wrinkle in the plan. The tiger was going to have to make a more calculated attack. I took a few tentative steps away from the tree, then stopped. Where are we going to go in the boat? I called to the man. Once again, he stretched out his hand and repeated his command. Come and see. I squinted my eyes, surveying the water. It didn't look friendly, and the thought of sailing alone, being tossed by those waves, pushed me back toward the tree again. The tiger froze, smiling, waiting for me to resume my climb. The man, however, knew my thoughts. I will be with you always, he called out. Stopping in my tracks, I turned once more to face him. I looked back at the tree and gazed long and hard at the tiger, crouching in the branches. And then I made my decision. I would like to tell you that every time this scenario repeats itself, I choose to climb in the boat with a savior. I would love to declare victory over that tiger, sprinting instead to the boat, so I can jump right in next to Jesus, ready to journey into the unknown with him. But this is a tricky place in my heart. This location in my soul contains caverns of past hurts and caves of self-doubt. When I do manage to come above ground and attempt to live in the fresh air of the present, the tree and its temptations wait for me. But then again, so does the water, and so does the boat. Maybe your tiger is an anxiety. Maybe it's depression, or loneliness, or finances, or illness. Maybe it's been so long since you've heard the master's voice that your tree sits miles away from the shore, and all you can make out in the distance is an empty boat. During Lent, as we journey with Jesus to the places where he experienced loneliness, temptation, sadness, and rejection, perhaps we can also journey to those kinds of places with one another. Some days, I don't have the strength to run to the boat. I stay frozen, hands and feet on the tree until my husband or a close friend pries off my reluctant hands and leads me gently to the shore. May we find a way during the season to stop and listen. Listen to the voices telling us to come and see. Come and see the heartache of your friend whose marriage is in trouble. Come and see your aging parents' loneliness and fear of the future. Come and see your child's struggle to make friends. And then, when you've taken a good long look with them, lead them to the boat. Together, hear God's call to come and see the abundant life he promises. Climb in that boat, lean against his chest, 
and let him take you to the best place of all, the place of peace. That's an ending that I think Austin Bronte would both be proud of. This is this is a perfect, uh, I think, a, a, a perfect call to Lent, a perfect invitation, um, and I love the realization of um, uh, in this that it's not some easy answer. It feels like there's still like you you don't take away the struggle from it, right? Well, and the biggest fear for me about writing this these kind of emotions down is I never want to appear like I have it all together. Because goodness knows, <laughs> that's so far from the truth. And so I wanted to make that clear in there, too, that I don't always choose to do what I should. And sometimes I get stuck and the tiger gets me. But, yeah, I think that um, it's just a process. I think it'll always be a process. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the uh, inspiration for the story? Well, as I kind of mentioned in here, I've been reading a book, lots yeah. of different books lately. And so the concept of this anxiety tiger was something that immediately hit home for me. So I had been thinking about it and thinking about it. And I've been, um, I've started training for a marathon. And so I've been running a lot. And as I run, you know, your mind just goes all sorts of different places. And one day as I was running, I had this really clear vision of what I describe in the story. And so I was going to write it down anyway. And then we had our writing class where you talked about it. And so I thought I'd go ahead and just write about it, but oh, that's, that's, how it that's interesting because it was an image at the beginning. Right. It was just an image and I don't, something about it, it just kept kind of developing in my mind. I feel like with me, I get an idea and then I just sit on it for several days or sometimes weeks or months. And with this one over the course of a few days, it kind of took shape. And that one day when I was running, it really just became clear to me. So I wanted to put it into words anyway. I think I'm learning more too that the more honest I am with other people about things I'm thinking and things that I'm struggling with, the more I'm able to walk with somebody else as well. So that's been a big theme lately is um, because these kinds of thoughts can also be very selfish and they can isolate you and make you cut off. But when you open up and you're honest, then you find that other people are honest with you as well. And so then you can, then instead of being a selfish um, self curvature kind of thing, you really can get out of that and help somebody else too. I don't know about you. There's a thing in me that says you've got to be able to do this on your own. Right. And if you can't, you're somehow less Yes. than <laughs> what you ought to be. Right. Yeah. Um, and in, but in, in acknowledging that need, then you're pulled back into community. Mm -hmm. uh, what about mm -hmm. the image of the boat and the image of that that's kind of juxtaposed with this? Was that brewing as well, or was that something that hit quickly? No, that just kind of came out of nowhere. That <laughs> When I was running, I was thinking about all the things I was anxious about, and I was getting really frustrated with myself. And I was, um, we live in Georgetown, and so there's a park in Georgetown with a running path, and it goes around a lake. And so I don't think it was an accident that as I was running around the lake, the water kind of spoke to me. And I, all of a sudden, it just kind of came together that way. Mm -hmm. So I think water's always been for me an image of peace, but also an image of 
fear because I hate water. <laughs> I don't like swimming. <laughs> I don't like getting wet. I don't. Um, when we go to the ocean, it terrifies me and I really have to fight hard to like play in the water with my kids. And I think it's because I grew up in Kentucky, maybe where we didn't have, you know, big water. Yeah. Um, so water is very relaxing as I sit on the beach and listen to it, but it's scary for me to think about going in. And so I wanted to make the water really dark and unappealing as well as the tree um, because I wanted it to be a choice again. Like you really have to trust that man in the boat um, because the water is not somewhere where you want to go either. And I feel like that as I think about when we choose to do the right thing, sometimes it's really difficult and it's scary to think about breaking out of those habits that you've been stuck in for so long. And you really do have to trust that God is leading you somewhere safe and better than what you've got, even if you can't see it. Yeah. 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 That's the key because there's, there's a danger in a danger in both. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a risk, I think. <laughs> yeah. There's a risk yeah. in it, and there's a security in the anxiety. Right. Cause you know I what think. that feels like, right. You, yeah. at least you know what it's going to feel like and you know that you're going to make your way out of it. Um, even though it's going to hurt and you're going to feel terrible, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. Sometimes there's a, a comfort in in the pain of that whatever that is that is that right. you're that you're experiencing. Yeah. I think it's um, a long time ago. I read a few books by Jean Vanier. Have you ever heard of him? No. He's a he was a um, spiritual writer. I'm pretty sure he's passed away, but he wrote books about living in community. And in one of the books, he said um, something to the effect of. Uh, you have to will yourself to be well, almost like sometimes it's so easy to stay stuck and stay sick And you know, sick can mean lots of different things. And sometimes it's just easier to be in that place. And I always, you know, I always think about that when I think about myself and, you know, these same things that keep coming up and coming up and coming up and I just have to will to be well, but I can't do it by myself. I know that, you know, and he makes that very clear in his books too. But he talks about how community can be a big part of that as well. Just helping you heal and move on. Like don't stay where you've been. Maybe the next chapter of this story would be a whole boat full of people, <laughs> um, a cruise ship instead of just <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Who knows? Jesus is there too, but <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I love that image though. And I love that it moves from, it's dreamlike in a sense mm -hmm. because there's this, these images that kind of are juxtaposed against each other pretty pretty quickly, and they they yeah. pop up, uh, and then you move into to a thought of, of of this community, these other folks alongside of you, mm -hmm. um, which is another beautiful call to Lent to remind us that mm -hmm. this isn't just uh, wandering in the desert alone, right? But we get to go wander in the <laughs> desert with friends, with other people. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> They're just as needy as we are. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, beautifully problematic. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. I think that's what how we're supposed to walk together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. For thank you. This. Yes. I thank really you for letting me read it. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Wayfair. And thanks to Anna Walsh for sharing her writing with us. Wayfair is a production of Central Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky a loving and progressive gathering of Christians. You can find out more about us at LexCentral.com. I'm Aaron Austin, and I'll see you next week for another step along the journey.